Sometimes you wonder, when you look at a crowd, who the most unromantic people in that crowd might be. So I'm just going to say that. As we are here on Sunday nights, we are uh, in this uh, series called Unswerving. And uh, some of you now are just now getting that. We are endeavoring to look at the stories of faith. Stories of the characters and people that made up early Christianity and how their stories relate to our stories. There is, uh, as I've told you before, you probably know somewhat of some of Christie's health problems. She has an autoimmune disease, and basically that means that that's something she'll have her whole life. But she takes medicine and does what the doctors tell her to do, and it's manageable. But at once a year, she has to have a couple of pretty big tests, and every so often she's got to have blood tests. And when she comes out of those tests, they don't tell her much right then. But a week or two or three, we'll get a letter in the mailbox from the doctor's office, from the lab. Uh, and it's basically her doctor having looked over her labs and her tests. And so far, all of those tasks, tasks, good grief, all of those tests have resulted in the following letter. Dear Christy, have looked over your test, have consulted with the doctors at our clinic, and we consider you unremarkable. Which to most people would not be a compliment, but in her situation, it's everything you could hope for. Unremarkable. That's what I want to talk about tonight. This idea of unremarkable. Uh, the people who made up the followers of Jesus, more often than not, were unremarkable people. People that if you were selecting the team, if you were trying to build a worldwide movement, these are the people that you would probably not think of first. As followers of Jesus, you and I are called to be, in a way, unremarkable. Because the more that it's about our own talents, abilities, skills, and effort, the less focus goes to Jesus. But when it's about people who, have, who aren't the wisest, who aren't the sharpest, who don't have the greatest skill or ability, who are, in a worldly sense, unremarkable. You're in prime position to be called, and more importantly, to be used by Jesus. Tonight I want to tell you the story of two unremarkable men. We have, on Sunday nights, been talking about this from this uh, Theme verse of Hebrews chapter 10, verse 23. And that verse very simply says, Let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess. For he who promised is faithful. Two unremarkable men who left an unforgettable impression. Their names were Peter and John. Their story is found in Acts chapter 4, verses 8 through 13. 
which if you're in our daily Bible reading, that's day number 32. And here we read this story. If you're following along, if you have your Bibles, open them up. This won't be on the, the screen for you. Sunday night crowd, I think you handle your, your Bibles yourself. Let's read from Acts chapter 4, verses 8 through 13. Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers and elders of the people, if we are being called to account today for an, account, for an act of kindness shown to a man who was lame and are being asked how he was healed, <clears throat> then know this, you and all people of Israel, it is by the name of Jesus, Christ of Naz- Nazareth, whom you crucified, but whom God raised from the dead, that this man stands before you healed. Jesus is the stone you builders rejected, which has become the cornerstone. Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved. Verse 13, when they saw the courage of Peter and John and realized that they were unschooled, ordinary men, they were astonished and they took note that these men had been with Jesus. I want to start by, by noting that these men had been with Jesus for over three years at this point. And they weren't always this bold. If you go to Luke chapter 22 in the Luke's account of the betrayal, Jesus was arrested by the temple guards, by the Romans, in the courtyards, in the courtyard, the disciples run for their lives. Peter is hiding in the shadows. He's denying Christ to a servant girl. He has a great amount of fear, as all the disciples did. Three times, the bold Peter denies Christ. What happened? We see this kind of waffling. I think, I think most notably in Peter, because he was the most outspoken, but really in all of them. There were times of great boldness, times when they said, you know, James and John said, hey, uh, let's, Jesus, when you establish this kingdom, is it all right if we're on your right and on your left? And when he did the miracles and when he fed the crowds and, and there were thousands upon thousands of people following Jesus, the disciples were very bold. They were very excited. In the start of a new movement, and we happen to be um, in with the right crowd. Very bold. And then as Jesus predicts his betrayal and his death, and as he goes through that, all of them, the shepherd was struck and the sheep scatter. What happened? What happened then? What happened now? What makes them so bold? Well, to do that, to understand, we have to go back to Acts chapter 3. Uh, In Acts chapter 3, in the whole chapter, Peter and John heal a well-known, publicly acknowledged uh, cripple. He was a beggar. He sat at the gate. People brought him there. He would beg for alms every day. That That was the routine. There was no doubt in anyone's mind of who he was and of his predicament and of his lot in life. 
He begs from Peter and John. They don't give him money, but they give him a pretty good gift instead. They give him his, his health. They give him his ability to walk. So the people are just amazed by this. Now this is a, is a genuine miracle. It was clear that he had physically no ability, and then Peter and John gave him, gave him this ability. And the people all around, they know this is not just some plant. This was, this was that guy we saw every day. And they're filled with awe and wonder. And so they head over to Peter and John, bringing, they want it, they want, obviously they're thinking of people for, him to, for them to heal and Peter uses this opportunity to preach to them the gospel. He doesn't use it to heal more people. He uses it to them to, to teach the name of Christ. And this is where the controversy erupts in, in Acts 3. The priests and the temple guards and the Sadducees, they, they arrest them. And near as I can tell, they arrest them for two things. One, teaching the people, because that wasn't these were not trained teachers. They were not the authorized teachers um, of the day. And two, for proclaiming the resurrection, which of course we know that the Sadducees didn't believe in at all. Uh, even despite their efforts to stop this message, we're told that those who heard the sermon believed, and the number of believers grew to at least 5,000, 5,000 men. We presume there was more women, possibly children. The next day, the rulers, elders, and the teachers of the law, they convene a meeting in Jerusalem. The Jewish ruling body, also called the Sanhedrin. And there's lots of big names there. These are the, these are the people that you would suspect that Jesus would, would have picked for his team. Very knowledgeable, well-known rabbis and teachers who uh, had a lot of knowledge and a lot of respect for their abilities. We've got Annas the high priest. Uh, he's already been replaced by Caiaphas. These are big names. You and I don't have any understanding of these names. But these were the big names of the day. <clears throat> and they bring Peter and John before them. And they say, by what power or name did you do this? In other words, who are you? What gives you the right? Uh, there's a, a version of a, a video Bible. I want to show this um, from Acts chapter 4. This is Acts 4, verses 1 through 22. Nope. Is it the video? Does it play? captain of the temple guard and the Sadducees came up to Peter and John while they were speaking to the people. They were greatly disturbed because the apostles were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection of the dead. They seized Peter and John, and because it was evening, they put them in jail until the next day. But many who heard the message believed, and the number of men grew to about 5,000. The next day, the rulers, elders, and teachers of the law met in Jerusalem. Annas, the high priest, was there, and so were Caiaphas, John, Alexander, and the other men of the high priest's family. They had Peter and John brought before them and began to question them. By what power or what name did you do this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers and elders of the people, 
If we are being called to account today for an act of kindness shown to a cripple and are asked how he was healed, then know this, you and all the people of Israel. It is by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, but whom God raised from the dead, that this man stands before you healed. He is the stone you builders rejected, which has become the capstone. Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved. When they saw the courage of Peter and John and realized that they were unschooled, ordinary men, they were astonished, and they took note that these men had been with Jesus. But since they could see the man who had been healed standing there with them, there was nothing they could say. So they ordered them to withdraw from the Sanhedrin and then conferred together. What are we going to do with these men? They asked. Everybody living in Jerusalem knows they have done an outstanding miracle. And we cannot deny it. But to stop this thing from spreading any further among the people, we must warn these men to speak no longer to anyone in this name. Then they called them in again and commanded them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John replied, Judge for yourselves whether it is right in God's sight to obey you rather than God. For we cannot help speaking about what we have seen and heard. After further threats, they let them go. They could not decide how to punish them because all the people were praising God for what had happened. For the man who was miraculously healed was over 40 years old. I love this particular version because it's word for word from the NIV 1984. And it gives us a visual picture. I'm sure it's nowhere close to accurate. But it gives us an understanding of what might have happened. What I wanted to, to, to see, to, to envision, to understand is there was an audacity, a boldness, a fearlessness, a courage that, that so enveloped the spirit of the apostles and the disciples. Everything that they did, and it was all, as I view it anyway, post-resurrection. I mean, once you, they saw the empty tomb, and for those who were able to see the risen Christ, they, I mean, really, folks, what stops you after that? If death can't take down your leader, what do you have to fear? If you believe, if your hope is in that same resurrection, what are you worried about? This is the, that kind of, of beautiful boldness that I think Peter had that day, but that was really a part of the, the early church DNA. And if I'm speak, speaking frankly, I think we've lost some of that. We don't see, if you read through the story of Acts, I'm not saying we've lost it entirely, but I just don't see that kind of boldness and, and, and fearlessness in us today. And yet, we serve the same Jesus. We follow the same rabbi. He, his resurrection is just as true today as it was 2,000 years ago. Now, this was not the first time, of course, that Peter spoke. Uh, Peter was, you know, I think probably 
picked for his willingness to say what needed to be said. I thought about that. That's sort of my job now. I, I got to say things that are in the Bible. And sometimes those things can be offensive. Sometimes those things can be difficult. But it's not just my job. It's our job to speak, to speak up, to speak out. Peter, in Acts, at least by my count, you can disagree if you want, had about six sermons in Acts. And they were, none of them were short, small, insignificant words. And all of them were direct, to the point. You could not have heard his message and and misunderstood what he was trying to say. The first one, of course, is Acts chapter 2 in Pentecost. The second one is at the temple. The third one, this is the third one. The fourth one is to the Gentiles. The fifth one is to the Jerusalem church. And the sixth one is to the Jerusalem council. That's in Acts. Obviously, he spoke a lot more than that. But his words... Though they were his words, they were guided, they were directed by the Spirit. The Spirit continued to, as Jesus would tell his disciples during the ministry, you know, don't worry about what you're going to say. I'm going to bring you before councils and before all of these groups and leaders of men. And in times like that, if how you and I would deal with it is, All right, I better make a plan here what I'm going to say and how I'm going to say it. Jesus said, don't worry about that. When you get there, the Spirit will teach you exactly what to say and how to say it. Since Acts chapter 2, he had used their tongues to say his words. In Acts, it's called uh, glossolalia, which was the uh, uh, miraculous ability to use their tongues to speak a language, a real language, that they had never studied. Now, folks in today's world say they speak in tongues, and that's not the same thing at all. Those are just utterances, just babbling. It's not... What they did back then. But whether it was a foreign language they had never studied or their own language to their own people, God still directed the message. I don't think he, he does that miraculously in us, and, and, and there may be a few instances, I've just never witnessed it personally. But I do think that, that the Spirit who indwells us today does give us the right words to say at the right time, if we will choose to let him use our mouths. That kind of boldness is still required. The willingness to speak up, to speak out for what is right and for the truth of the gospel. It's so ironic to me that here is Peter, a common, ordinary, uneducated, blue-collar fisherman, who puts the Sanhedrin, the religious experts, the teachers of the day, on trial. Was that by Peter's ability? No. Of course not. That was the Spirit speaking through him. And here's what he said. It was a four-point sermon. He didn't have a nice little handout or anything, but he said, first, it's by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. He always brings it back to the name. Second, he says, you crucified him. You did that. You need to know that was the guy, the scriptures that you study diligently, that you've memorized, the the word that you have so uh, deeply put into your hearts, 
proclaimed that there was a Messiah coming, and he was here, and you killed him. But don't worry about it. God raised it. God took care of it. Third, he said he's the rejected cornerstone. Now, this, uh, this is a prediction from Psalms chapter 118, verse 22. I'm not going to read that one. I want you to turn over to Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 19 through 22. Ephesians 2, 19 through 22. Paul writes this to the church at Ephesus. He says concerning the cornerstone. Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and aliens, but fellow citizens with God's people and members of God's household, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. Important, I think most of this crowd understands it here tonight, but Jesus is the head of the church. There's no one else that gets to be the head. He's the cornerstone. He's the, what they're saying there is he's the foundational block. It starts with him. Everything comes to a point with him. All, everything that happens within there starts with the Christ. Verse 21. In him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. You understand what he's saying there? He's saying that the church is more than just the this. Unfortunately, we think today church as the building. But it's so much more than that. And it's so much more than even just this group meeting in the building tonight. Paul says it's within you where the spirit resides. That's what made the temple holy. It was the residing of where the spirit dwelt. And it starts with Jesus. And the fourth point is salvation is through him alone. And you can't read through the New Testament without coming away from this idea that Jesus is the only way. He is the only hope of mankind given to, God, given to men by God on earth. That's it. There is no other person or group or religion it, it's only through Christ alone. Jesus said this of himself. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but through me. You can say that's politically incorrect, but you cannot dismiss it. Either what Jesus said was true, or it was not. He was a liar. He was a false teacher, if it's not true. That's a pretty strong dividing line. And that message is continued throughout the, uh, certainly the book of Acts and in the New Testament. This four-point sermon, I think, really gives the church so much boldness within the church, uh, within the, the ministry that they're going to lead, within the various countries and cities and towns that it's going to spread out to. It's that boldness. Um, turn to Acts chapter 4, verses 29 and following. Acts chapter 4. They're praying here. 
Now, Lord, consider their threats and enable your servants to speak your word with great boldness. And then pray for the leaders of their country. I'm not saying we shouldn't do that. They just didn't start there. They didn't pray for those who were attacking, for the, uh, attacking them. They said, consider their threats and give your servants abilities to rise to the level of the challenge. Consider their threats and enable your servants to speak your word with great boldness. Stretch out your hand to heal and perform miraculous signs and wonders through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. Verse 31, after they prayed, the place where they were meeting was shaken. I was really hoping we'd have an earthquake or an aftershock right there, but that would have been really great. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke the word of God boldly. In the face of temptation and trial and difficulty, the early church does not say, I mean, there are times for this, but but they principally do not say, Lord, protect us and keep us safe. Give us a shelter that we can hide from everything bad. What they did was say, Lord, consider how bad it is and enable us to speak with the boldness we ought to. And that is how the church should be today. That's what we're called to be. Peter and John didn't just have a bold message. They were brave messengers. The courage of Peter and John to preach Jesus to them was amazing. And it's it, it, not just amazing in Peter and John. That's what the story focuses on tonight. But it's just this whole beautiful boldness that the early church had. I think it was boldness by the, shown by the assurance in his name and by the authority from him. You remember the Old Testament verse from Proverbs. Proverbs chapter 28, verse 1. Proverbs 28, 1 says, The wicked flee when no man pursues, but the righteous are as bold as a lion. When your trust is fully, completely in God, There's a fearlessness that overcomes your spirit. No matter what happens, whether it's a health problem or someone persecuting you, troubles at work or troubles at school or troubles in the world, it gives us a very great boldness because our trust is not in this world. Our trust is not in the things of this world, the people or its ideals. Our trust is in the one. and He gives us great boldness. Now, I should say, by the way, This boldness is not confidence, arrogance, or self-assurance. I truly believe it's a spiritual gift that gives people who have zero right to be bold the courage to do so. Our confidence doesn't come with, well, I can do this. I can I can muster it up. I I can I'm I'm glad God chose me for this task because I'm uniquely qualified to do it. Now he he gives us this beautiful boldness that is far above positive thinking or self trust and self reliance. Our confidence must always be in Christ and in His ability to provide, not in our own. This is what Philippians four thirteen reminds us of. I can do all things through Christ 
who strengthens me. Anytime you're saying, I can do this, I can do this, I can be bold enough, you're coming at it the wrong way. It's not about you. Remember, these were unschooled, ordinary men. They were not trained from the brightest rabbis in the greatest rabbi schools. They were not brilliant teachers or exceptionally gifted and smart. They had no notoriety in religious circles, no outstanding ability. They were simple, they were common, they were ordinary. They were nobody special, really. The only thing that really made them special is they had been with Jesus. Go back to Matthew chapter 11, verses 25 through 26. Matthew 11, 25 through 26. This is such a cool prayer that Jesus prays, and I'm, I'm reminded of it every time I feel inadequate, which is often. At that time, Jesus said, I praise you, Father. Lord of heaven and earth, because you have hidden these things from the wise and the learned and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for this was your good pleasure. When we trust the message of Jesus to people who are brilliant and smart and talented and have all of these things they bring to the table, Somehow we lose the essence of what Jesus did when he called those twelve. You see, what made, what made ordinary men extraordinary was not who they were. That's why it's so hard to study the apostles. We don't know anything about them other than they hung around with Jesus. They had nothing, they, I mean, there was, there's nothing on the historical record about these men. They brought nothing. It wasn't about who they were. It was about who they were with. Yet they had been with Jesus. They were ordinary men willing to learn. They were ordinary men willing to humble themselves. Ordinary men just doing ordinary things with an extraordinary teacher. Sometimes you've maybe heard the adage, I know I repeat it often to my children. Tell me who you run with, and I'll tell you who you are. Well, I think the same is true for these twelve. Jesus changes people. He makes them not just into who they want to be, but into who he wants them to be. Now turn over to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. This is a, a long stretch of verse, so... But I think it beautifully reminds us of what Jesus did in the church. What Jesus is still doing in the church. 1 Corinthians 1, starting at verse 18. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to those who are being saved is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise... The intelligence of the intelligent I will frustrate. Where is the wise man? Where is the scholar? 
Where is the philosopher of this age? Has God not made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of the world, in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not know him. God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. Jews demand miraculous signs. Greeks look for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. A stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. But to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God, for the foolishness of God is wiser than man's wisdom. And the weakness of God is stronger than man's strength. Brothers, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many of you were influential. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. He chose the lowly things of the world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are so that no one may boast before him. It is because of him that you are in Christ Jesus who has become for us the wisdom from God. That is our righteousness, holiness, and redemption. Therefore, as it is written, Let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. There was a time when I focused really on being the best, and it's still in my nature very much so. But the older I get, the more mature I become as a Christian, the more I realize, the more I focus on my abilities, the less I focus on his abilities. The more I focus on who I am, more I forget who he is. The more remarkable you are, rather, the more unremarkable you are, the better prepared you are for Jesus to work in you. That's who he uses. What should make you remarkable is him working in you. This is what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15. By the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace to me was not without effect. I hope the whole world looks at us as a church and says, what an ordinary, unsophisticated, normal group of people. What in the world is so special about them? To which we say, exactly right. There is nothing about us that even matters. What matters is what he has done in us and through us. So that leaves us with where where we want to end up tonight. You may be unremarkable, but with Christ in you, you are unstoppable. This this is the story of the whole gospel. And, And all throughout the acts of the church, we can't help it. Look at Go back to Acts chapter 4. Then they called them in again, that's about verse 18, and commanded them. Now these are the high priests, the the teachers, the 
the leaders of the day, the notoriety, the, the, the authority figures, they bring him in and they say, we command you not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. And here's what they say. Which is right in God's eyes to listen to you or to him. You be the judges. As for us, we cannot help speaking about what we've seen and heard. We understand there are two basic lessons for us. We, as unremarkable sheep, have an unstoppable shepherd. Don't worry about being someone. Just make sure you're with the one. Very simple. Number one, trust and obey him. Don't lean on your own understanding, but in all your ways acknowledge him, and he will make your path straight. And secondly, live bold lives. The early church was so bold and courageous, they had nothing to fear. And in so many ways, we would look at their lives and say, man, they had nothing. But they sure had boldness. And that's what we're called to be as well. To be bold for Jesus, not by our power, but by his alone. To let his words be our words. Next week, we'll look at the story of the jailer. I figure most of you tonight have been wise enough to put your life into the hands of the master, the shepherd, the ruler. But maybe you haven't. And I want to invite, extend to you that invitation. Or if you have, but you've strayed away, you begin trusting in your own works and your own words, maybe it's time to ask the church for help. If we can pray with you, pray for you, encourage you. If you have a need tonight, please come. I'll meet you down front.